Hello and welcome everybody to a new episode of the Advanced Real Estate Talk. It's Aurelia, uh, the Mindful Investor. I'm here with my co-hosts um, Darcy and Glenn. And today we will be covering some of the key concepts of real estate investing. And uh, I'm going to start out with two concepts that work well together, NOI and cap rate. So to bring it just to as an introduction, uh, so NOI stands for net operating income. And basically what you do, you take the gross income, which is which um, uh, includes the rents, ancillary yep. income such as laundry, parking, and um, some investors are quite creative. So they are, there can be some interesting uh, other ways of uh, generating income to which we usually subtract a vacancy rate and an ec economic vacancy, which is a difference between the actual rental income and the gross potential potential rent rent of the property. And then you deduct the operating expenses, which are the main ones are uh, property management, insurance, property taxes, depending the climate where you invest, you're going to have snow removal, lawn care, and the other main one is uh, repair and maintenance. And this, these repair and maintenance are usually higher the older the buildings. And so this gives you the net operating income. And this net operating income, if you know the cap rate, which I will define in a second, uh, you can help you um, calculate the purchase price or the, the, the value of a property. Because uh, the formula is quite simple, it's the cap rate is the NOI divided by the, sorry, the value is the NOI divided by the cap rate. That's how you calculate the value. And the cap rate itself is the rate of return of an investment property based on the income, uh, the NOI, which we just defined, that the property is expected to generate. So for example, to, to make it simple, uh, if you buy a property for 1 million at a 10% cap rate, it means that your NOI is going to be $100,000 a year. And a uh, cap rate is very useful. It allows to compare um, investment products among each other. And uh, other remarks about cap rate, the lower the cap rate, usually the more expensive the property. And and you make money in the differential between the cap rate and the interest rate you pay on the debt. Yeah, so this would be my introductory remarks about cap rate. <laughs> Ari, we should mention too that in both of those calculations, there's no debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so no one gets confused, because I've seen people calculate this wrong, and they, you, what the most common problem I see is is they have their mortgage payment or something like that in there, right? Yeah, no, it doesn't include the debt. Yeah, and I've also seen like uh, with real estate pro formas, it's discretionary what's included as expenses. It, you might think that, your, that management expenses should be an expense, but they say, no, that's my expense. That's not your expense. I'm taking it out. And all in ways to reduce the overall expenses and increase the net, which will help out with the cap rate and the NOI, make it a more attractive purchase. It's critical what goes into that and that you know, that you look at all the numbers and make your own determination what is your actual expenses and what you're looking at, because you could be looking at two dissimilar properties because of what's included and what's not included, and they would perform quite differently on paper, but they might be almost exactly like in, in actuality. Um, my wife, I mentioned Karen a lot. She says, try to help me remember which is good cap and bad cap. 
I say it's the opposite of, of stock investing. You buy high and you sell low. Just mm. think of the opposite of whatever it tells you about investing. Buy low, sell high. Cap rate sell is the opposite. Buy high, sell low. A high cap rate means there's a really good return there, but it probably is commensurate with the risk involved. But that's an easy one for, for her to remember. It's the opposite like usually. Yeah. yeah. She also has a trick for remembering which are the short irons, which go farther, and the high-numbered irons, which go a shorter distance. I haven't figured out a good mnemonic for that, so she's always picking the wrong club. <laughs> it helps because we bet on the game, and uh, the, less, the poorer she does, the better I do. So, you know, it's not bad. <laughs> That's awesome. That's good. Thanks, Ryan. That's good. <laughs> where do we, where we want to go next? Uh, what about we do... Uh... Uh, syndication at LPGP with Darcy. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I want to tell a little story about why this is important because this could be a dry subject and people right now might be reaching for like next, uh, tell me more tenant stories. Yeah. Um, this is important that, you know, that old saw saying the devil is in the details. If you screw up the details and you don't know what you're doing, you're vulnerable to getting screwed over. You really know, need to know what you're doing. And the terms are important. What is in those terms and what do they actually define? And this might be one of the more challenging parts of your business. Everybody can learn how to cut baseboards appropriately. It might take you 10 times to get a, you know, an interior corner correct. So you're not piling dap into it, but you'll eventually get it. But if you don't spend the time to figure this out, the costs and the downside are huge. So the terms are, are significantly important. Um, I try to educate my investors. Um, they're different. They have different levels of sophistication. They're all pretty smart people, but they come from different backgrounds. I recall sitting in an um, office with a kind of a tricky refi with some risk averse partners. And the whole evening stopped uh, the signing, which is, seemed very straightforward to me because they didn't totally understand the terms that the lawyer was using. And I had one partner stop and we all waited for about 12 minutes while she read through standard mortgage terms which may be the most boring, dull thing in the world, but if you don't know what they mean and what's in there, it could be terrifying. Um, so that's why that's my pitch for why this is important stuff. It might not be the juiciest stuff, but it might be the most important things. Um, I would like to talk about one of my uh, favorite things is syndication. Um, a syndication is quite simply uh, control or management by a group. It's a temporary situation. It doesn't last for life, forever. It's agreed to with a fixed term or fixed conditions. We're syndicating and we're managing this asset or this situation on behalf of others. Um, it's temporary and it's about managing interests or values. So a syndication can be about an idea. We can syndicate some values and notable things would be syndicating a, a representation agreement, you know, um, but often it's about a bit, it's generally used in business. It's where one party syndicates the interests of the others and puts together a management agreement for them. And this says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this together. And the reason it's together is because you can't do it on your own, right? You, the power of one is overstated. The power of groups and of many is, is quite significant. And you might syndicate ideas around politics and policy or around an investment. And that's where it comes in for us. I can only invest what I have access to, the equity to, and my own personal you know, wealth. But on behalf of others, we can network our wealth and if I syndicate together and do what none of us could do alone. And that's the real genius of real estate syndication, that we can chip in a leveraged amount, 30%, 3% of 
$300,000 on a million dollar asset. None of us had $300,000, but we had 50, you know, and six people with $50,000 can gain control through a syndication agreement of a million dollar asset and leverage the whole families, all those families up into wealth. It's genius. Um, you do it only because you have to. Like, there's no good reason to take on partners because it's trouble. You know, you're going to have to compromise. You're going to have to have hard conversations. You're going to have to agree together. And those things are tricky. We do it well generally, but once money gets involved or risk or conflict or differing ideas, the syndication becomes a tricky thing. So you do it only because you need to. You know, don't do it because it's cool because nobody cool is doing that. You're doing it because you need to. Don't, don't be fooled. If someone says it's they want to, if they're lying, if they really want, could do it on their own, they would. But you do it because you must. I think the must. sexy part is that people want to do it because they want to do, uh, they want to raise a lot of money, right? Like that's, yeah. they, they, yeah. They, they don't have the money to do these things themselves. And yeah, that's. Absolutely. Um, you know, one, one partner may be uh, generously thinking of others. And I think that comes into it because the rewards for the, the director or the president of a syndication generally is unrewarded. You're not paid. You don't get director's fees. Some do. Uh, it's a rare occurrence. I've almost never seen it. Um, but, it, you know, that's why, that's why you do it. And that's what a syndication is. It's maybe sound kind of esoteric, but it's straightforward. It's just an agreement between parties to work together. Um, but it does require a little bit of legal finesse and uh, putting it together and um, some hard work. But it's a really, really good idea. When you come to the end of your own funds, you're going to have to syndicate with others. Darcy, Glenn, what do you, you say got? the deal has to be a certain value or a certain amount of units to, for it to make sense to do that or a certain number of partners when like when would it make sense to do the syndication i it would never make sense to do it with people you don't trust because there's no there's no point in that it's like blowing your own brains out that's crazy um it would make sense i mean the legal for it is probably going to cost you a few thousand dollars every year and you know the trouble of producing the documents and filing and that cost you a little bit so it probably wouldn't make sense if you're too two close brothers buying a, you know, a duplex together. But once you got more significant assets and you're raising significant amounts of money, I think if you're buying a million dollar asset or, well, that's, that's not even a home in the Valley out here anymore. A million dollar <laughs> asset. That sounds like a lot. And then you go, Oh, that's a three bedroom condo in Surrey. That's a million. For example, asset. for simplicity's sake, but uh, yeah, that's right. Let's say a $3 million asset. And therein is inflation folks. $3 million asset. Um, yeah, it tells how old I am. A $200,000 yeah. home. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit to the, you know, who does what in the LPGP? So you have the general partner who's active and yeah. the partners was silent mostly. Yeah. A typical uh, syndication will probably have a, a, a somebody who organizes and pulls it together and they likely will call themselves the general partner. In, in that situation, they have responsibilities for and to. They're generally responsible for the operations of that. And they're also legally and morally responsible. The law sees you as responsible for it. the general partner. They're taking on those responsibilities. So often you would only do that if you're compensated. You wouldn't take on being the general partner because you want to. You're doing it for compensation. Um, it might not be a, a director's fees, but it would be participating shares in the project. So the general partner would take on those liabilities. The general partner would be the, typically maybe called the operating partner. Um, those are my other words that might come up, president or director, but they have legal responsibility for that. Everything that happens there. So who do you sue? 
the sidewalks aren't shoveled. Someone slipped and cracked their head. Who do you sue? The GP. They're going to have errors in emissions insurance unless they're insane. Um, but that's the person who's responsible. And they take on those responsibilities for a piece of the, of the equity or the cash flow. The limited partners, the terms came limited because they are limited to liability. They are limited to the amounts that they put into that project. So if I'm the limited partner and I put $50,000 into Glenn and Ari's project, and they're, t they're engaging operators and contractors, and they're checking the fire extinguishers, they're checking the hoses, they're responsible for all the bylaw stuff. If someone gets sued, I could potentially, I could potentially lose my 50,000, but they're not taking my house. It is limited to what I put in. And that's important. People undersell that and say, well, I gave that guy $50,000. You know, he's getting something for nothing. No, no, you are limited to the downside of this thing. Your limited risk is at 50 grand. The GP it could be, is potentially be responsible for anything bad that happens and is singularly responsible or joint and severally responsible with his heirs for all the debts, all judgments, all, all uh, debts that incur to that property are on the GP. It's significant. They need compensation for that. You make a deal too skinny for the GP. They won't want to do that. They have to have some reason to risk for this for their group. And also, can you speak to the responsibilities, like what tasks do they accomplish in, for, on behalf of the... Generally everything. Uh, the limited partner is limited to the money. They put the $50,000 check in, they get a receipt, and then you talk to them quarterly, annually, and at the wrap up. Now, some of them, you talk to them informally, and you might have even more reporting than that, but they are they gave you their money. That's it. They check out then, they check back in to see how they're doing. The GP would be responsible for all fiscal uh, reporting, all filings, taxes, all uh, bylaw, um, local, federal, provincial, if there's toxic water produced on the property, uh, asbestos found in the building, someone slips and falls, all debts, everything, all liens, that's on the GP. And that they, you know, they need to be compensated for that. I operate as the GP in our partnerships. I work full-time, constantly, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, and I acknowledge both the statute, those legal requirements, and the moral requirements. When you take people into your building that you've prepared, you're morally required, obligated, in my opinion, to take good care of them. So people that are expiring from heat, people that are you know, living a horrible life because you're a really crappy slumlord, I judge you. That's immoral. I hate guys like that. Slumlords, I hate them. So in my opinion, you're morally responsible, not just statute responsible. You're morally responsible for that project. I take it seriously. Um, so if there's anyone else that takes issue with that, you can find me. I'm on the internet. <laughs> so, so there is a... We can talk about, uh, you know, usually uh, it's it's along the lines of a 20% GP and 80% LP. And, and sometimes there is a fee structure. There could be an acquisition fee. Um, and usually the way it's structured, it allows for the, the general partner, when they put the property on the contract, you know, they have to put some money down. And and basically the, um, uh, the acquisition fee can be uh, reimbursing the... Uh, the general partner for the money they put down and then this money becomes a their part of the limited partnership and, okay. and there is an asset management fee that you, people can take um, one to three percent to uh, just uh, you know take care of a task along the along the way yeah i would caution people there's a there's a whole pile of ways there's no typical 
for these partnerships. Uh, ours is a fairly skinny one, 20% of everything, but no fees, no rent up. I don't buy the building for a million, sell it to the partnership for one by one and extract a hundred thousand. I know some groups do that. That's our fee. It's still a good deal. Why are you complaining? Well, cause you made a hundred thousand dollars off our purchase, off our credit. I'd be no money under management fees, but other guys do that. Make sure other guys, other people do that. Make sure you know what's in that, what that deal looks like, because there's lots of ways. It's like I said earlier, how to describe your net operating income. What's, what's been taken out of that? Because they do have absolute control. You, you, as a limited partner, you're limited to the money you put in. You have no control. That's what you trade for limited. The moment you take any control of the operations of that property, say, hey, I can help out. I want it. Then you lose your limited status and then you become liable for the financial and legal obligations of the company. So to preserve that limited liability, you have to stay behind your side of the curtain. But it does mean that GP has absolute control of that property. The timing of disbursements and dividends, what debt they take on, what obligations, what contracts they sign, what they book as capital, what they book as a write-off, all of that is in their control. You really have to know, and in some measure, you know, watch, trust, check, all the things that you would do carefully with an investment. Um, I don't say yeah, trust me. We could, we could I say, have a whole episode on how to vet uh, a syndicate. Yeah, you could. could. I would never say trust me, though. Say, I'd say, I say to people, let me prove it to you. Let yeah. me prove it to you. And I work really hard to be transparent and a good communicator and let, me, let people know what we're doing and why we're doing it. Sometimes it's not to your benefit to do that because it just creates more questions and more questions and you end, end up explaining a lot and spending a lot of time on it. But it's totally worth it. It's time well spent. The time that woman took for 12 minutes to read standard mortgage terms, you know, was a tiny bit frustrating because I had a lawyer that's charging $450 an hour. That 12 minutes cost all of us $72, roughly. Yeah. You know, uh, but it made her a better partner. So it's what money well spent. Yeah. And uh, don't forget, you know, this, some of us here speak from experience, but it's also important to, uh, to you know, talk to a lawyer, talk to an accountant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Rely on Especially uh, for something like that. <laughs> yeah. So Glenn, what you want to tell us about the uh, lease options, rent to own and subject to? Sure. I would have to pop back in. I've been just in like listening to Darcy mode. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when I did my very first speaking gig at a, a local RIA, um, the person who went up in front of me, like, because usually they do two speakers every night, the person right before me was uh, a lease option guy. And, you know, the whole time I was like, I sat there and I went, I don't need this. This isn't for me. This is a waste of my time. And I didn't really listen as well as I could have, right? I was just like, this is a, this is a strategy. Why would I want to do this? You know, real estate is a buy and hold. I want to hold something forever. That was my, my idea, right? I'm like, why would I want something where I'm but renting it to someone for just a short period of time? And then they get to buy the property. But you, you, there's a, there's two sides of this coin, right? And I was naive, and this is also many, many years ago, but I was naive about what, what all these advantages of doing a lease option. And it's just something you should have in your tool belt because say you go to want to do a flip, um, you can still flip into like a lease option or you could exit through a lease option instead of selling the property. It's just another exit to have in your toolbox and you should understand how to do it. Uh, <laughs> because it's, it has some major, major advantages. And another thing is that it works really, really well 
in markets that are very expensive and it works in markets that are very cheap. A lot of strategies, uh, if you listen to me, I'll always say like, you know, you know, long-term rentals, cash flow. There's different things that work in different markets, but a lease option works in both. It works in both. And that's why it's so popular in Canada and it's so popular in the States. And uh, I don't even think I said like a lot of people call it rent to own, um, but uh, it's, it's least, it's a lease option is what the, what the, I don't know if there's actually any difference between rent to own and a lease option, but the way I do it is um, basically there is two contracts. And this is what muddies up um, people who are doing the signings for you. Cause I always hire out someone to lease up the property mm-hmm. and they, they see either a rental contract or the lease option contract. And a lot of times they think you sent them both on accident and they only get one of them signed. <laughs> and, but what it is, is the way a lease option is, is it's two contracts. One contract is a rent typical uh, tenancy contract, right? But it has the option to purchase this property. This is not like, like, you know, it's not set in stone. They can walk away, but you lay out in the contract what happens. Um, one of the reasons that I absolutely love lease options and I've actually, I don't even really, I can't even think of a single family I keep without doing uh, a lease option now because I always want the exit on everything. But it, it does, it, the biggest problem in most real estate, if you do the buy and hold long-term thing is you're just, you live off that cash flow, but there's not um, now, like the three parts of money, now money, soon money, and later money. And you don't, with a lease option, you get all of those things. And you go, how do you get those? Well, when the tenant moves in, you charge them a deposit for the ability to be in your lease option, right? To, to have the, the ability to purchase this contract. You want them to have skin in the game. So you want them to be putting some money down, right? Um, so what it usually is, is like 5% of the sale price is kind of what they're looking at, which would be typical to what even a bank would look at. Um, and one other thing by charging a deposit that's this high, um, they have skin in the game. Um, they, if they don't fulfill their part of the duty, then they lose that deposit. It's a deposit. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, a, it's a good way to actually be able to charge higher deposits on things. Um, throughout the property, you get a higher cash flow doing a lease option than a typical rental. Um, typically, you mark up whatever you, the rent is. Uh, at least typically the way I do them is 100 bucks. I move it up. And then from what like um, uh, rental meter would say it would go for, what my property manager would rent it for normally. And then we charge another $100 on top of that which will be a credit that the tenant will get back on closing. So whenever they finally, usually there's something wrong that they have to fix their credit or save up a deposit or something, right? Um, so at the end of this, they will have the credits for their original deposit and then say that whatever you decided that monthly um, additional part that they're paying towards growing their deposit, that will be all uh, included in the end so they have more money. And then the last part of a lease option is when you sell a property, right? So now you're going to get another chunk of money. So a lot of people, at least what I was doing off the start was at first I want to do long-term rentals. And then I'm like, there's no money now. This, this, is a, this is a tough game to play, right? You get this cash flow, especially if you're in an expensive market, which isn't substantial. You make all your money on this appreciation and refis and stuff like that, but it isn't always there. 
So it was a good strategy. I switched to going to doing some flips so I get some money now and some money later and have the, the cash flow going through. But this is just a strategy that does it all in one. You don't have to have uh, all these different properties to do this. So if you don't have like, you know, 50 or 100 properties and you want to do a whole bunch of different strategies on different ones in order to try and make you make your money come in in different pieces, uh, this is just a strategy that gets your money it sets puts your money up right from the start so that you can, it, it makes it a lot li easier to live off of. How, how many of you have failed to um, exercise their option and forfeited their deposits? Because I think some listeners that are in it or doing it, would be, I would be curious about that. What's your failure rate to exercise option that they walk away from it and you pocket that difference and deposit? Quite yeah, few? so I think I've had two that have failed. Right. So out of how many, probably around 10. So okay. it's a 20%, but it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a weird thing. Right. Um, if we're going to go to it, like typically both of them should have been successful. Um, yeah. The, the one uh, without trying to get into too many details, they, I, you know what? I'm probably going to go into too many details just to tell the story. But basically, they decided to walk away. Uh, things had changed in their life. They wanted to move uh, far away. They wanted to move to a different part of the country. And okay. they're and then they're just like, well, can we, we can we, you know, it was a good lease option. Then the money, the property had appreciated. Um, the what we were selling it to them under contract, they could sell it for far higher. And we, ended, I, I ended up selling the property for far higher after they walked away. And I suggested that. And I said, but it's, it's a contract. So you have yep. the option to purchase it. So this is how it's laid out. And I went over it with them. You have the option to purchase this property. Um, these are your credits. This is your thing. And that's the thing. And they go, well, could you sell it and then just give me all that money? And I said, no, I, that's, it, this is an option. To, this is a lease option. But the option you do have is you could double close this property and you could sell it off for more than what you sure. have under contract. The, the market's yeah. crazy right now. You could just double close it. You could go sell it. And you know what? That's why wholesaling and everything works so well. It was just, they're like, ah, it sounds like a lot of work. And they just walked away. Wow. Because I know <laughs> as, growing up as a kid, my father had uh, a really good job uh, with a business that he relocated, but the money was in the equity of family equity was in his business at the time. And interest rates, this is like 1980. Everyone talks about the interest rates in 8081. They were 18% for a new mortgage. It was a brief period where they're ridiculous. And he couldn't, didn't have a big enough down payment to even qualify for good, good mortgage rates at the time. His money was all in his business. We did one of those. I think for two years, the landlord took a, because he had the cash flow to support a overmarket rental yep. that he could do that. And he deferred the purchase until he knew the real estate or the uh, interest rates were coming down. He could get better banking at 11 and a half or 12% for a first mortgage in CNC insured first um, for five more years. Um, you know, that's just what happened, but it was a good strategy for him. They could afford to overpay because he had decent cash flow. What he didn't have was equity. And I could see that working um, worked for us. It's a way to get into a property in the lower mainland when we moved from up country. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a good way also for people who have a hard time getting access to a home ownership to a, to, you know, it gives them time to better their credit score and, uh, you know, put some money aside. And uh, one question people may have in the audience, uh, Glenn, so how do you establish the price you're going to sell it for? 
<laughs> yeah, good question. So, yeah, I think basically you, um, this isn't a good one. So I, some people do is they will get it to figure out what it's worth right now. And then if they go, well, the market is, you know, you can Google other stuff, what uh, Toronto appreciates at, what Chicago appreciates at, and then just forecast it out by three years, right? Mm -hmm. I tried on one of my lease options to do that in the contract. So if you bought it at day one, it's cheaper. And then every like year it gets more expensive and they didn't like it. No one wanted to sign it because they were like, well, that's basically my, um, my extra payment every month is just going into feeding that, right? That's how they looked at it, right? And so it, it, didn't, it didn't work that way. Um, a lot of times I get a realtor to pull it out. We try to do our best guess about what it would be worth in three years. And honestly, you go on the high end. You are providing a service. You're providing something. You're giving people home ownership who can't qualify for home ownership, right? So in the other side of this coin that I don't even want to get into, but there's land contracts as well, right? So a land truck contract is similar to a lease option. The difference is that the tenant is on, it's different paperwork and they are on the title of the property. Um, what that does is it gives the tenant the advantage that they've been already making mortgage payments on and been on the property so they can show a history um, of, you know, making payments, which works out well, right? Because what you're trying to do is get them to, to the finish line, right? Because there's something yeah. that's held them up. Maybe they're new to the country. They don't have credit. Maybe, they're, um, maybe their credit is shot. Maybe yeah. they need the down payment. Uh, maybe because of what they do or whatever, their contractors. Um, that's often where I like to go with them is that people have high income but don't report it. Um, so they can't qualify <laughs> for stuff. <laughs> and, and so it's a good win-win for that and for, for me, right? So just solving a problem again with, with all this stuff. Yeah, rightly understood. It's fair and it's a route to home ownership. Mm. But uh, I think people get fixated on, you're holding my money. What if I don't do it? Well, then don't sign it. But yeah. if you intend to fulfill the contract, and enter into, into the contract with a owner or landlord in good faith, and both parties have good faith, which is a requirement for a good deal, um, it, it really works. It's, you know, I would have considered it. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of people right now, like, how do you even get into buying any of these properties now? Like people who are buying my neighborhood, how do they possibly do this? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I know I already said we're saying we're almost done. Um, yeah. what my, I'll, I'll cover my second topic really quick because it's, it's only a couple sentences. So the second term I wanted to go over was subject to. Uh, you people hear that thrown around a lot and they, they don't really know what it is, but it's really, really simple thing is what you're basically doing is taking the mortgage uh, of the property, right? So uh, you're inheriting the mortgage. So um, say, you know, some seller of some house, they would get a mortgage on their house. And then when they sell the property to me, we keep that mortgage on. They have still qualified for the mortgage. They are still liable for the mortgage, but we have a good faith contract that I will continue to pay that for them. Um, I know a lot of people will get sketchy about the this, um, due on sale clause on a lot of mortgage contracts, but I've uh, never heard of anyone actually having it executed. The banks 
preference is for people to pay the mortgages, right? That's so that it's, it seems to work for them. Um, a lot of people will go, why the heck would a seller even be open to keeping the liability on and everything else? And in all honesty, sometimes they just don't have any other options. Um, so a lot of times these people have got put down the minimum amount of money on the property. Say they, it was, say they put down 2% with one of these crazy financing programs, right? And the, it doesn't take much that they can get way out of whack on this thing, right? And they can't sell it for what they are, uh, what, you know, and so they might be like, sure, just take over the mortgage and it could work into a win-win. It gets really tricky and a lot of things to sometimes make those work on the ones that are really close to the purchase price. It's, yeah. it's really hard to buy something when, but you have the mortgage in place. So as a Canadian, um, maybe that would be advantageous for stuff in the States because you have just inherited a, a nice American mortgage at a really cheap rate that you couldn't ever qualify for. Yeah. Um, and so maybe it, you can make it work that way. Sometimes, um, you know, uh, I love this kind of with seller financing because it's all financing, but I love some of these things where you're like, oh, okay, even if it's only 50%, you're like, hey, I can, uh, maybe I'm new in a flip. I don't need to be in this property for this long and I can just do this uh, for six months and I don't have to go get hard money or expensive private loan just for that short period. And I could just keep pay making his little cheap payments because it's a conventional mortgage. Maybe, maybe that makes sense. But yeah. anyway, I don't want to go too much into um, subject two, but basically the, the gut just of it is that you're just inheriting someone's other, someone else's mortgage and you are going to be making those payments going forward. And the seller is still the one liable and qualified for that mortgage, even though they- well, Who's on title then? The what? Who's on title? You, you would move it. You would move it to yourself. Okay. Yeah. Often, yeah. This, is, this is a whole subject, but uh, we are going to do this in two parts, right, Ari? We're going to yeah. do part two. So hang on for part two. This is important. This is the <laughs> devil that's in the details, folks. Once you get past this lump, I'm going to go tell great stories. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> tuning in for this uh, part one of uh, Real Estate Lingo. And uh, once again, if you want to join us or uh, send us a question, you can do so by emailing us at advancedreitalk at gmail.com, advancedreitalk at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to answer during the show. And um, yeah, hopefully we we'll see you all next week for the second part of our show about real estate lingo. Bye.